Howdy. Welcome to Healthcare Ain't Easy with Chris Matthew. I'm Chris Matthew. Healthcare can be so challenging. It can be so frustrating. It can also be really rewarding and incredibly powerful. We've all had these experiences in our life. Here at Healthcare Ain't Easy, we're going to have conversations with people. We're going to learn and talk about the challenges that are taking place in healthcare. We're going to try to figure out how can we bring AI, how can we bring advanced technology, how can we bring breakthrough tech to help people do more with less and restore joy for physicians and patients, because ultimately that matters. And that's what we're going to get into in these conversations. I've spent the last two decades navigating healthcare in various ways. I've been very fortunate to be involved with AI and different technologies, applying them to different healthcare models. And I've been able to explore with incredible people that I've been able to come alongside how to help people do more with less. Ultimately, we know healthcare ain't easy. It's, it's really complicated sometimes. But the conversations we have with the guests that we have, we're looking to really make sure that we can explore what the challenges that the healthcare industry is facing and how can we do more together. We do know this, if we connect, if we communicate, if we collaborate, we have the opportunity to do more. And that's what we're gonna get into. My why is to connect with people so that we boldly contribute to an improved world. If you are generously sharing your time with me, I genuinely want to ask, will you share your why with me? Follow us on our social channels, I love knowing what people's purpose is. What's your drive? What's your why? Let me know. I want to connect. What I'm excited about right now is that we are at Thrive, Athena Health's Thrive 2023. This is day two. For Sniffle, this is a big deal for us. This is our national debut. Athena is a really strategic partner for us, uh, one of many, but this is where we're lifting up the curtain and letting everyone know what we've been working on for years bringing AI and an AI virtual care ecosystem to life. And we're going to help these practices and these hospitals and these physicians take better care of their patients and to do it with breakthrough technology. I also want to know what you're excited about. Today, we are fortunate to have uh, a great friend and a, a person that's been a, an influence for me, Andy Berman. Andy recently retired after 45 years in the healthcare industry. Listen, you're about to hear a lot, so um, get ready. Andy was most recently serving as the president and CEO of the Florida Association of Community Health Centers in Tallahassee. Prior to this, Andy served as the CEO of the Lake Okeechobee Rural Health Network for eight years. He was the center director for the Everglades AHEC Center, the first AHEC in Florida. We're going to find out what an AHEC is here in a little bit, and assisted with the development of the Florida AHEC Network. Andy began his career in health services at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach in 1976. Andy serves on numerous statewide and national legislative governmental committees and organizations. This guy is dedicated to service. He loves to contribute and be involved. I, I really, uh, it's an attribute that I'm, I'm trying to mirror from him. He served as the chair of the National Rural Health Association's Health Policy Congress, which is the policymaking body for the National Rural Health Association and is a member of the Board of Trustees. He has a strong background in legislative and governmental policy development, managed care development, health systems, organizational strategies. He holds a secretary, uh, he also holds a secretary of the VA appoint, appointee to the Veterans Rural Health Advisory Committee. 
And he worked extensively with managed care organizations. His experience includes developing a managed care health plan in collaboration with an existing health plan, successfully developing, deploying it to five different counties. I think actually it was 10 counties. Yeah, it's 10. 10 counties throughout Florida. Has worked extensively with enrollment and outreach to all sorts of consumers and a very hands-on experience in the development of the utilization of provider networks. And he also has uh, third-party administrator expertise and risk adjustment experience as well. And he's authored numerous articles and publications in the areas of healthcare, strategic development, organizational dynamics, and leadership, and is presented at the state and national conferences. Uh, he holds a BS in Health Services Administration and MBA from the University of Florida, and he is an avid aviator and served in the United States Navy and is also a Vietnam veteran. Thank you very much for your service. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here, Chris. So, Andy, let's start with just what's good. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, as you mentioned in that very long beginning there, um, retirement isn't uh, exactly just, you know, putting down all your books and going home for the day. Uh, there's an opportunity to still contribute. And that's been important to me most of my career. Um, so I get to do that. So right now I'm involved with some projects that I really, really have wanted to do for a very long time and just couldn't get the time to do it. And that's fun. Well, you being a contributor and being of service makes perfect sense. It's, it's what you've been doing your whole career. Um, also, you're looking good. Thank you. Working on it. Lane and trim over here. Um, so Andy, let's start with, give us a highlight reel of where are you from and, and, what helped shape you to become the person you are today? Well, it's a long story. When you get to be my age, you have to go back pretty deep to figure <laughs> out, you know, where were the beginnings. But to be honest with you, um, I think this is something everybody has to feel about, too. I've always had this feeling about service. I, I can't explain it. It's, I think it's innate in some people, and maybe I was lucky enough, you know, to get that. But um, started out... Um, I'm from New York originally, Brooklyn. I gotta get a shout out to Brooklyn. Um, in fact, when I speak to people, my first words out of my mouth are, before I start to talk, I have to let you know that I'm from Brooklyn. And that explains a lot coming forward. Anyway, um, moving forward, um, career-wise, um, served in the Navy, uh, very proud of that. And when I got out of the service, um, I had a degree in engineering, electrical engineering. Um, and went to work for Mount Sinai as a biomedical engineer. Had no idea what I was going to do, but that was where it came. I ended up getting involved with administration, and I really liked the, the policy side of, of healthcare. And not going to uh, medical school or being a provider, uh, this for me was a way that I could contribute something to the system that I thought would make, make sense. So I stayed with that and really enjoyed working with uh, providers and, and hospital-based systems at that time. Um, and then I went to work for the, the AHEC network. Now, I know you were talking a little bit about that. Let me maybe give yeah. you a little bit of an what, explanation. What is an AHEC? AHEC stands for Area Health Education Center. And basically what it is, it was a federal program that was uh, propagated through medical schools um, to set up localized centers to do recruitment, training, and retention programs for underserved communities. So basically in a rural community is a good example where there weren't a lot of providers, getting providers into the area and then giving them more of a social balance to what they have to do and helping them with their clinical side. That's what AHEC did. Uh, so 
the service area that we had were 10 counties, 10 rural counties in uh, mostly rural counties in, um, in Florida. Um, that program, we were able to expand to include initially, to be honest, it was with a, uh, what's today known as Nova Southeastern University. That was the first program, AHEC program in the state of Florida. It was called a different school and no one will remember it. So just remember Nova. But from that point, we went to the University of Miami, the University of Florida and Florida State University. All of those medical schools went ahead and had AHEC programs. So we built a, a statewide AHEC network and covered all the counties and did a lot of recruitment, training, retention programs. We started camp programs for kids that were interested in health professions, things like that. And it was very exciting. And from there, um, our state decided that they wanted to do uh, something for the rural communities. At the time, this is back in the late 90s, there were, out of Florida, 67 counties, 33 of them were considered rural counties. Wow. Yeah, I know most people think of Florida as Miami Beach, it isn't Miami Beach, just Miami is Miami Beach. Um, but uh, through the whole center quarter and especially the panhandle, um, it's, it's very rural. Um, so the state decided they wanted to put together rural health networks that would help um, coordinate services for rural communities. And we did that. Um, during that time though, uh, each of the networks that were out there, there were 10 networks that were spread around the state. For me, I saw right away one of the most important things was to be able to find an insurance product or something because we had a lot of employees, hospital employees, local employees, sugar growers, all these people out in my communities that were not able to get insurance. Excuse me. So we were able to pull together with a, a health plan, and you read, um, a managed care plan out there in rural Florida. That had never been done before with any real success. Well, it worked. We got it set up and we had uh, quite a few covered lives. And when I left the network, it was still operating. From there, um, you know the rest of it. Um, uh, the association um, and I talked about, you know, next steps for them. And I came on board in actually 2001 to work for the uh, association as the president and CEO of the Florida Association Community Health Centers. And so there we are. Here we are today. When we first met, uh, you made the comment, you're like, we haven't seen each other in some time. Uh, but when we first met, I had no gray hair. Um, That's so true. We've known each other for quite some time now. What I really remember, and I've shared this with you, but I, I it just, it, it's worth mentioning again. Andy is a really generous person. He, uh, I remember the first time I went to the Florida Association of Community Health Centers Conference. I'm a new person, I'm a new partner exhibitor, trying to make an impact, trying to get connected. Uh, but it was my first time and I didn't know anyone and no one knew me and, and our small little company at the time. Um, but you took, you showed great kindness and generosity to me. Uh, introducing me to people and also can kind of giving me the blueprint of, this is what you need to do. These are the people you need to connect with. This is how you need to show up for them. And over a period of several years, we, we flourished with tremendous success throughout the state of Florida um, because of FAC and lots of other great people that were involved with FAC. But but I also attribute a, a good portion of that to you. So thanks for that. Let me ask you this. You've done AHEC. I've seen firsthand the impact you made with FAC. I know that the, the health centers, um, what they do for patients, FQHCs are federally qualified health centers. And that's what um, 
the Florida Association of Community Health Centers, that was that their purpose was to support FQHCs throughout the state of Florida. Let's start with maybe, can you give us a little background on what is an FQHC and why do they exist? Why is that uh, important for our healthcare infrastructure? That's a great question, Chris. And it's important for people to understand this. I'm going to talk a little bit to people uh, when we talk about yeah. this. So FQHCs, Ferry Crawford Health Centers, are also known as community health centers. And actually, they started back in the 60s. Uh, President Johnson's uh, War on Poverty um, uh, came together with an idea to put neighborhood medical um, or clinics, neighborhood clinics together to literally talk uh, to the local community about healthcare and get the get people to come in who did not have access to healthcare in the past. Um, so starting off in two health centers, one in the in the Mississippi Delta and one outside of Boston, Massachusetts, um, those two uh, start the whole started the entire world of FQHCs, and from those two. We are now up to over 1,500 corporations around the country serving over 30 million patients. Um, in Florida, we have 54 FQHCs, uh, but those FQHCs have satellite uh, sites all across all of the counties. Um, and right now there's about 800 separate sites. We serve close to 1.9 million patients. Most of these patients, and this is what an FQHC is really known for, they're, they're there to serve a population that doesn't have access to care in most other ways. Uh, one reason maybe is they don't have insurance. They can't afford it, obviously, that's a big issue. Two, access, there was no access. So FQHCs are put into underserved communities and neighborhoods where there is currently maybe no access to healthcare. The more important issue for the way things are today though is FQHCs see uninsured populations, unlike other uh, provider groups there is who have no mandates for this. And FQHC has a mandate to see every patient regardless of their financial status. So if you're insured and I'm not, and you get an appointment, I have to get an appointment too. And they can't roll me out six weeks later. So an FQHC treats every patient exactly the same, whether they're insured or not. That's the mantra. That's what they're supposed to do. And they do that. And they do a very good job of it. So they focus a lot on chronic disease management, um, diabetes, um, obesity, um, hypertension, smoking cessation, things like that. So um, again, and we maybe, maybe we'll talk about this, about all these things are about primary care, but an FQAC does comprehensive primary care. They also do dental services and behavioral health and substance abuse programs. And these are all mandated programs become an FQHC by the, to be qualified as an FQHC by the feds. So in a nutshell, that's what an FQHC does, what they are. Um, they serve a critical function. Without FQHCs, so many of this patient population, 30 million Americans would not, they would neglect healthcare altogether, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Right? actually, you know, a lot of us have heard this comment before, not made by us, made by a legislator, a congressman that the FQACs are the safety net, primary care safety net. And I think that's, that's accurate because if we're not there, in many cases, there is no healthcare services. You end up in the ER. We all know that that is the absolute worst place to put somebody unless it's absolutely dire necessity. Yeah. Um, there's so much changing around healthcare. What, let me start with, what, what concerns you about the future of healthcare? 
And then let's, after that, let's talk about what excites you about the future of healthcare. Good question. You know, I love the, the title of this podcast, Healthcare Ain't Easy. That's probably one of my biggest concerns. Healthcare ain't easy. And it's not, it's not made easy. And I think that's something that we have pushed to the side for the most part in this country. Um, and what that means to me is that we have found every way possible to make it complicated. It doesn't have to be this way. But, you know, we have a system that's based on, on, on I use the right word, might be capitalism. Okay, this is not a commodity, and it should be. Okay, everybody has a right to health care. They have a right to quality health care. But if we put it in, I guess, silos where some people can go and get what they need, but other people have to take what's the rest of the crumbs, that's not the way health care needs to be dealt out. It needs to be the same for everybody because everybody has that right. And we've not done a good job uh, of doing this. For example, one of the things that I have always pushed hard, if you want to change the dynamic of healthcare in this country, you have got to make primary care uh, a priority. It has to be. We all talk about primary care as an anchor to what healthcare is, but we don't treat it as an anchor. And you and I, we've talked about this. Primary care is about six or 7% of the total amount of money spent in healthcare in this country. 7%, but it represents probably 60% of the real problems before they get shipped off to a specialist. Mm -hmm. If you want to change that dynamic in healthcare, you focus on primary preventive care services. If you do that, uh, you'll cut out a huge portion of acute care costs and pharmaceutical costs and all the other things that are representative of where our cost conundrum is for healthcare. But we don't seem to have an appetite to make that shift. And I think that's probably my biggest, you know, in my world, Ajna. Okay, it just sits there, and you know that it's the right thing to do. So, so that's what concerns you, and I agree. I think that primary care is critically important. I think health equity and health access is critically important. I believe that people, especially in this country, deserve to have the opportunity to be healthy. And now, you know, and I've talked with other people that you got to be willing to do things for yourself too. You got to be willing to be, you know. Uh, proactive with your health and on your health journey. Yeah. But you don't, you shouldn't have to do it alone. And, and there are incredible people that dedicate their lives to healthcare, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians to, to take these roles is a serious commitment educationally, financially, um, and to, to give them that, that opportunity to serve their life's purpose, to find joy in medicine. We got to be able to help them do that. And part of that joy is to help people be healed and to be healthy and being proactive about that is how we can do that. And so I, I'm absolutely a believer that primary care is critical. What are you optimistic about for the future of healthcare? Two things, people and technology. And I, and I know that sounds very generic and, oh, gee, that's an easy answer. But let me explain that a little bit. Okay. Young people who are getting into this field into healthcare, not just maybe as a provider, but on the um, technology side, the electronics side, uh, how we integrate the use of technology into healthcare today um, to do things that you just talked about, not just making better clinical decisions, but engaging patients directly, okay? Something that we've, we've kind of lost face 
uh, lost base of over many, many decades is we push all of the attention to the provider side and we push less and less to the patient side. And I'm seeing people who are getting into our world, you know, um, not accepting that anymore. And I, I, that makes me feel really potentially positive about the future because these are people that are gonna stand up and say to legislators and people who are passing laws that restrict the use of certain things or maybe um, make more regulatory um, components to healthcare. That's not gonna be the answer. The answer is how do you get patients engaged, making sure that the providers still can do their jobs and give them the best technology to do it so that you integrate all this together. This is what young people do. People in my age that went to medical school uh, did it with a pencil and a paper. People that are uh, my daughter's age that are in medical school are using iPads for everything. You know, It's fast, it's quick, and it gives them a lot better opportunity to take a look at things. But you gotta be willing to do that. So that's my first thing is, is uh, excitement about people and technology. I love it. Um, working with physicians as closely as you have and with FQHCs for a long time, how welcoming and how open do you think, in particular FQHCs, how open are they to these type of advanced technologies and, and AI getting involved in the process? That's a great question. L let, let me give you a, a true story about this. So you remember back, I mean, it's it's been quite a few years now, probably over, it's more than a decade, maybe almost two, when EHR was a buzzword, you know, we were talking about electronic health records, but nobody knew what it was. FQHCs in 1998 started pulling these things together through what's called health center controlled networks. Basically what they were was a, it was a, a group of FQHCs got together and decided that they were going to share records and, and through, a, through, a, through an application of some kind. And when EHR started to come together, and, and you, re, you may or may not remember back in the day, they were not very good when we first started, it gave the opportunity for records to be shared. Forget the fact that they were electronic and it was easier to see. In those days, in order to get a record, you had to scan it to get it into the record, okay? That's not a, excuse me, that's not very interactive to start with, right? But FQHCs started doing this as early as 2000. Every FQHC is on an EHR system today. They all are. They, they have massive systems. And in Florida, every one of our FQHCs are on, uh, we have three or four EHR applications that are out there that are, you know, that are being used. Uh, Athena is one of them. Um, Azera, I think, is one of them. We have um, Epic. Epic is a big, big one, big part yeah. of it. Yeah, and, and my point is that um, if anybody is in a position to take the next step, I would say it would be FQACs because they're used to this. They know how to use it. They know the goods and the bads yeah. of it. And most of the people that are engaged with this are highly qualified technical people. They really know what they're doing. Yeah. You know, my perspective on FQHCs, uh, I've worked with FQHCs all across the country. You know, I was obviously involved with, with you all in Florida, but with lots of states actually mm -hmm. all around the country. And a common theme that I see 
uh, in people that choose to put their purpose and passion into FQHEs, they're scrappy people. Oh, yeah. These are gritty people, right? Like adversity and getting knocked down, don't scare them. Yeah. We ain't scared, right? They're just, that's part of the deal. And so I do think that that's a good point that you bring up. You know, FQHCs, another colleague and friend of mine implemented an FQHC with a, uh, an EHR rather with an FQHC in Waco in 1998, they implemented Epic. And he oversaw that configuration. And I was just like, 98 yeah. an FQHC. I, I was shocked, but it also supports the fact part of the mission statement, the kind of my perspective of the unofficial mission statement is in particular for FQHCs. We have to find a way to do more with less period. We have complicated patients. They have complex issues. We don't have just a never ending abundance of resources. So we have to find ways to do things and be scrappy and technology, EHRs, AI, these things are tools to help us do more with the limited resources we have. Before we get into the AI side, which is the, the new generation of what we're going to talk about, let's go back to the comment about doing more with less. I think this is important. What makes an FQHC so very special uh, and different than what we see in the regular uh, what, what most people know of going to the doctor's office. And this is not any disparaging about any provider system or group or anything. Uh, our, our healthcare system is better than any in the world. I, I'm absolutely convinced of that. But the difference is this. FQHCs, like any other organization, have to be and remain a what we call a going concern. That means they have to actually be a business that is operational and is successful. You can't run in the red for 20 years. FQHCs don't do that. They fail. Okay. Just like any other business. Uh, you might think that that wouldn't be the case because they get federal money to help them. But that federal money, to be honest with you, is less than 20% of their operating revenue. Okay. It's very little. And there's restrictions on what you can do with that money. Okay. It's only for infrastructure. My point is this. When I look in in all the years that I have been involved with healthcare, looking at hospital systems that I've worked with, um, multi-specialty groups that I've worked with, with hospitals and systems, um, practice plans that work with hospitals and so forth. The FQHC model, to me, seems to be the best opportunity for real success to changing what I said was the dynamic of healthcare in terms of cost. And the reason I say that is, again, I cannot stress this enough. If we don't make a change to look at primary preventive care as the main anchor to the healthcare system and pay for that service up front, we're gonna, you'll have this, it'll never change. And healthcare will continue to spiral out of control. FQHCs are primed in that space. That is what they are good at. They are fantastic at comprehensive primary care. They know how to connect with the locals. They know how to work with the hospitals. They know how to get with the local uh, specialty groups to bring the patients back. And they can keep the patients in there and keep them coming when they need to be seen. So as an example, if you have a large diabetic population, which many of our health centers do, they're coming in there every 90 days getting their A1Cs checked. You don't have that a lot of times in the, in, the, in the private sector because there's nobody checking that out. FQHCs do it as part of their mainframe of work. Yeah. So that's the first thing. I think that's why FQHCs, in my estimation, are primed to be what we want primary care to look like in this country. 
what where do you see virtual care uh, obviously during the pandemic everyone was turning to virtual care but in the fqhc market based on that the patient population that they are there to serve mm -hmm. where what do you think virtual care can do for that community well, to be honest with you we we did virtual care we had telecare whatever you want to call it, telemedicine you know it's a buzzword for everything um fqhcs do that with their patients they do it now um uh, the big thing, again, I keep bringing this up, but I can't help it, is everybody wants to know on every level, providers, uh, private sector, public sector, whatever, how do you get paid for the service? Once that's determined, um, there is a place for virtual care, a big place for it. To me, as I look moving to the future, I think virtual care will take a much bigger role. As long as a provider can get paid for seeing the patient, reasonably paid for seeing the patient. If it's not a situation where they have to be in the room, which means you have to have a actual physical exam right there in the spot, I don't see anything wrong with a virtual visit. I think that's fine. In fact, I have one on Friday for myself, my own orthopedic guy. We're doing something online because I don't need to go running in there knowing that I need an MRI, so he's going to send me for one. My point is that this phase of healthcare delivery is where it is. And I think it sets the stage for where we can go. And now we could talk a little bit about AI because I think that is a clear path. And I know a lot of people are scared to death about what AI could be. But depending on how it's used, you take virtual and you move it to the patient not to the provider. And let's be real. Even in the virtual space right now, we talk about this and we talk about this at our own FQHCs. It's the providers that are making the entries into virtual care. What AI could do is have it start from the patient side too. Not just having, not just doing um, an appointment. Right. So, something obviously that um, we're biased about, but something we're also really excited about at Sniffle is the level and the amount of automation we brought in for intake. To, yeah. to create intake in the way that we've done, to digitize that and create automations around that. And I'm trying not to drink my own Kool-Aid, but no, I no, really no, believe okay. that speak, it I, I, can I, make a huge impact, not just for the patient, um, and, and this was a really great conversation that we had yesterday with you and Carter and Dr. Lemaster. You know, the intake issue of allowing a patient to be responsible for providing that information, it also gives them the opportunity to become an advocate or to, to go to a family member or a loved one or a friend and say, hey, here's, here's my diagnosis. What sh should I be concerned about this? What questions should I be asking? And I want to get your perspective on one, you know, the process right now of intake and, and what you think about, you know, what, how we're applying that. But also, I really want to get your information and perspective on how important, in your opinion, is health equity and health advocacy? Okay, so let's talk about intake first. Intake is everything. All right, that's the first thing. Um, I'll speak from the FQAC perspective yeah. for a moment, okay? But I think it, I think it applies to everyone. <sighs> We all go through this. You go to a new doctor, you walk in the door, and they give you a book like that to <laughs> fill out 
which you have filled out a million times. And you're sitting there and you're going, why am I doing this again? Are we not all on? The and no, the answer is that doctor's office is on a different kind of a system, right? That's the first thing. If we're going to do any real fixing, you got to get these systems to integrate and talk to each other. Got to have walls. We have HIPAA. I get all that. But you've got to have a way to integrate health systems. Um, and I have an example of that if we ever get to it um, where it's worked. But intake, um, today, even if you're um, an existing patient and you're going to see another doctor in a multi-specialty group, you still have to do that. Mm -hmm. If we could find a better solution to that, and to me the better solution is an iPad <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a stylus pencil and you fill in the, all that information one time and it goes into the system immediately so that when you're called up to the desk, it's all there. Nobody has to, because remember, when you write this down, listen to this people, because I don't know if you know this, when you write all this stuff down and you basically have written a book about yourself, that first has to be scanned into a computer. And then the computer has to then modify that so that you, the providers can make adjustments to it. That's three steps before the doctor even gets to talk to you. Why not just take that all away and have it come right from the patient, right to the system, or right to the provider, right there on the spot. So he can pull that and, oh, okay, yeah, okay. Because one of the things we don't do when you walk into the doctor's office, and it happens to all of us, you don't tell them everything. You think you tell them everything, but then you forget when you walk out the door, oh my God, I forgot to tell them about this. And that one little piece could make a difference. Having the good intake about where you are right now plus your history can solve some of that. So that's on the intake side. Yeah, I think, I think that's huge. The diagnosis tool that we have, you know, being built, you know, being data-driven is critical Everything. in today's world. So being this, our machine learning language protocol built on 14 million patient records and encounters, that patient, based on how they're answering questions, the AI and the tech knows the next questions to ask. So we're not relying on the patient to have to recall. Oh yeah. I do sometimes have a headache in the morning and the late afternoon. If it's only a morning headache and not a late afternoon headache, that may trigger another set of questions. But if we can remove the burden of patients having to be the source of all of it, and we can prompt them and ask them questions, strategic questions and, and get information and based on that, lead them down a path of an accurate assessment, then that physician's starting point is so much more powerful. Yeah. Right. And then, then there's, there's a ripple effect that takes place here. If the patient does a better intake, they are not so beat down by filling out a book about themselves. Yeah. They can go into the physician, maybe a little less uh, frustrated. The physician now has all this information that's been automated. Maybe they have more joy in their practice. And we start to create just a more delightful experience all around by letting AI and tech do the heavy lifting. Right. <laughs> Letting AI help. Yes. I think this is an important distinction here. Um, this is not a program that takes over. This is a program that helps a patient and a provider. It's an augmentation. That's right. Okay. And I think it's important to make that distinction again, because a lot of people are going to be very suspect or nervous about uh, all these kinds of things. I have friends of my own age who are already freaking out over EHR. Well, if I put this in there, everybody knows my record. Well, they don't know HIPAA. They don't know that. No, it's pretty, pretty locked down, solid. That your data is your data. That's it. Um, but 
having uh, two things that come to mind, having the opportunity to have something done interactively with a patient, what we're talking about with uh, sniffles, an example, great example, using that and providing the doctor with backup data that has been tested through, I don't know how many millions of data points you have in there, but the fact of the matter is a provider can look and agree and take it to the next step. Unlike, and this is the thing I, I, I will always tell people about this. This is not going online to uh, programs at Google, search for your, your chronic uh, uh, shoulder pain, okay, where you get an answer from, from one, of the, one of the search engines. Those are great, but that's not interactive. Okay, that has no data points. That just takes a look at what you're putting in and only uses what it knows. You don't know what their data points are to make that happen. So that's very, this is very interactive. And I think it gives, the second part about this is that it gives the provider a much clearer picture right up front. So it is something that um, makes, to me, makes a lot of sense that uh, practices should use to get their patients more engaged. And I also think that it will um, improve the relationship between the provider and the patient. Absolutely. And, and listen, relationships matter. It's everything. Continuity of care matters, but in the end, we are a believer of relationships. For Absolutely, sure. yep. Um, and if we can help strengthen that bond between a physician and her patients, that's uh, absolutely worthy of our efforts and Absolutely. Pursuit. Give me your take on the importance of health equity and health advocacy. Well, health equity, if you're talking about um, across everybody, across people, it's, it, it shouldn't even be a discussion. I mean, it's there. Everybody should have the same access to care. Everybody should be able to afford access to care. We, we should not have parameters in play uh, to make your healthcare different than mine or mine different, you know what I'm saying, that kind of thing. Um, I'd rather focus on advocacy to tell you the truth. Sure. Advocacy to me is a major, major thing. And what I mean by advocacy, I mean having somebody there to help you navigate through a system. Now, I'm not talking about a caregiver. I'm not talking about somebody who's actually going to be physically helping you. That's another function. And I'm not talking about somebody who has to go in there and have a medical background that can argue with a physician. That's not what this is about. This is about making sure that you as a patient always has the most information, not the best, the most first, and then of course the best, but having all of your questions answered. Because a lot of people get into situations that um, they actually get very timid about asking questions, whether you're in the hospital or your provider, you think, well, they know what they're doing. Well, they do know what they're doing, but you should never ever not ask a question that's that you're thinking about um and if you don't ask it you want somebody there that's going to ask it yeah. for you I, I i can't um champion that concept enough uh i've got my own personal story and connection to to mm -hmm. someone you know my dad not having not being the advocate or me my family not being the advocate to be able to ask questions. And it's not, a, it's not about being disrespectful. It's not diminishing nope. the physician's expertise. It's seeking clarity. Mm -hmm. It's making sure, uh, let me repeat back to you what you just shared with this patient. And right. 
make sure that we're all on the same page. And I think that it's in those moments that we can say, well, hold on, I, I, what about this? And then the doctor, again, doctors, physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, they're people. Yeah, they're human. And, and they have great days and they have bad days. And when they have an off day, maybe they're just flowing through the motions and, and they need someone to say, hey, doc, I got a question about this. Can you help me understand? Can you, you know, can you give me some clarity around this? It's their purpose to be able to make sure that you are on your path to healing and they're going to, they want to do that. Right. But if you don't ask, then they're just going to assume because they got a lot that they do have to get done that day. But it is our right to be able to ask and, and be an advocate for those that we know and love and, and care for. I have also, unfortunately, um, a similar story to yours, uh, although my story was fortunate in the other way that uh, my wife, who you know, Robin, um, she was an advocate for me when I had a uh, situation and I was in a hospital and I could not respond to anything. And let me tell you, if she wasn't there, it would have been a different story. Yeah. And, and I'm glad she almost <laughs> burned the place down. Yeah. Um, but she's fierce like that, which is great for you, especially. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Let me ask this. Uh, where do you see AI being able to specifically help patients that are uninsured, under, underserved, uh, the patient population in the traditional CHC and FQHC marketplaces? That's a great question. Um, let me say this first of all. I know there are, there are a lot of concerns about what artificial intelligence um, is capable of. Okay, you hear stories about programs that can write novels for you and all that. And they can, they can do all that stuff. Healthcare is a very different dynamic. It's a different industry. It doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to just open-ended discussion and writing. Uh, you're not gonna be, you're not gonna take an AI and become a doctor. You know what I mean? So the use of AI in healthcare has to be metered. It's got to have a specific purpose to it. It has to have a defined outcome. It can't be open-ended. Um, the use of it, to me, in the, well now, with what we're doing with Sniffle, as an example, and in the future, is, is the right direction. I mean, it is a tool that finally engages the patient easy. It's, it's, it's intuitive as hell. Excuse me. It is. And I think as you move forward with the use of programs like this, um, you're going to be able to do things like have a much smoother integration between systems, applications. And for the people out there, when I talked about EHR, all these uh, electronic health records are computer programs, they're applications, and they all have their own things they are all very today the more they are very sophisticated today they take care of everything in your record your pharmacy needs everything uh it'll download all of your charts all of your mris your ct all that right but being able to coordinate that from one hospital system to another needs an interface if ai does what i think it can do and I, i'm pretty sure it does it can, com, can, it can, can not coordinate. What's the word I'm looking for? Collaborate all that information and provide to the providers 
a very broad picture. And that is something that we don't really have right now. And as an example, where I live, there are two main hospital systems and they're big systems. They are, and they're fantastic. We are very fortunate where I live to have two major systems. I have doctors that I use in both of them. Unbelievably, they both share one application, one EHR record. And believe it or not, I can get on both of them through one portal. So basically I go to one portal and, I, and it says, do you wanna to go to this or this? And all that data is there, which means that all of my providers can get every one of my test results, everything I've ever done, every doctor note from any one of those doctors from either side. Take that and move that to an application that has the ability to algorithm wise, pull all this together to take a picture of a patient and give that to the primary care doc. Really powerful. Oh, yes. I mean, you, you want to talk about changing the dynamic of healthcare? That is what that does. Because now you don't have 50 parts that somebody has to look at. You got one part. That's really powerful. And amazing that you're the benefactor of those systems yeah. going through that collaboration, going through that connectivity, because now physician from hospital A can see a note from physician at hospital B and recognize I wasn't aware of that. Andy didn't speak up and tell me about that. Now I know. Let me, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to add this one thing, especially for senior citizens like me. Okay. Uh, this is really important. Um, one of the bigger issues that we have is medication. Mm. Um, I have an orthopedic doctor. I got a cardiologist, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Well, Orthopedic is doing one thing. Cardiology is doing another. Um, senior citizens don't, they just do, you know, we take, like everybody else, you take a medication. If I went to a third doctor, that third doctor can look on my chart and see who's giving me what medications to make sure that I don't take anything from them that has a contraindication because of the other right. drugs that I'm taking. Chris, that is a game changer, yeah. a pet, particularly for senior citizens. Yeah. It is a major issue. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, Andy, we, as we have throughout the years, we can keep going on and on for a <laughs> yeah. long time. But I'm going to ask, uh, we're going to end with this final question. Chris Shembra, who I, I know that you know as a Wall Street Journal bestselling author yeah. and uh, wrote Gratitude and Pasta, has this fantastic question. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life, you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? This is actually an easy question for me. And I can't give you one. It's two because they are exactly the same. And believe it or not, it is my father and my father-in-law. My dad gave me a sense of duty to serve, um, really, um, military and all in the future. I, my dad was always about service to other people. He was just, that's the way he was and that's what he taught me to do. And I will be forever grateful for that. My father-in-law was a much more mentoring kind of an individual for me in my, in my world, in my, in my industry, in my profession, what I was going to do. Um, and it always um, was uh, pushing me, you know, to do the right thing, make sure I'm doing it for people. Um, always used to tell me uh, being rich is not about money. It's about 
who you surround yourself with and, you know, everything else will fall in place. And he was right. He was right. Um, there is a saying, um, I don't know if I can say this on here, um, that I have lived by. It's a, a Jewish term called tikkun olam. Tikkun olam means repair the world. That is a main function of what the faith teaches us. Okay. I have tried to live that way and I got it from them too, the two of them. And that's what I believe in. That's I think we can do that. Amazing. Repair the world. I, I feel really fortunate. Um, there's a few others, but the, the two main people that I try to model myself after are my dad and my father-in-law as well. I, I totally hit it huge. My wife's family is amazing, but my father-in-law in particular, uh, it's not his words, it's his actions. Mm, yeah. right? It's the kindness that he is always showing to others. It's the respect that he gives to everyone. Yep. Um, his children are grown and they haven't been in the school system forever, but still this man is volunteering on the school board and has for the last 20 plus years. Uh, I don't even think he runs anymore because he's like, if someone else wants to serve, they're welcome to. But they're like, no, 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 you must stay. Right? His children haven't been in this community for 20 years now, but he's he's there and he's um, there to repair the world. And I think that's beautiful. And I feel really fortunate that I also have struck that lottery ticket as well. Um, I'm very grateful for our friendship and our, our opportunity to connect. And thank you very much. We are Healthcare Ain't Easy. Uh, I hope that you've enjoyed this opportunity to connect with Andy. Um, we look forward to more conversations about how we can bring AI and tech and solutions to help healthcare get easier. Because right now, healthcare ain't easy, but it is worthy of our efforts. It's worthy of our pursuit, uh, and it's worthy of our, our passion and our enthusiasm to make it a better place. Talk to you soon.